Welcome to Tisky Sour. We're going to spend most of the evening talking about Russia and Ukraine. On one level, I'm really pleased about that because I love it when we do foreign policy shows just because it's so interesting. Obviously, the circumstances are not really anything to celebrate. The big question, can we avoid World War III? It's not, not a particularly reassuring moment to find ourselves in. It is 48 hours since Vladimir Putin recognized the independence of Donetsk and Luhansk, two Russian separatist-controlled regions of eastern Ukraine. It's still unclear precisely what the impact of that provocative move will be. Russian troops have already been ordered into the area, but whether this will lead to direct fighting between the Russian and Ukrainian militaries will likely depend on where Putin intends the borders of the new republics of Donetsk and Luhansk to be. This BBC map shows in orange the parts of Donetsk and Luhansk which are currently controlled by separatists. There are still large parts of both regions under Ukrainian control. So will Russia fight for the rest of them? Putin was asked about that yesterday. As for the borders, what borders uh, will be recognized as the borders of these republics. We have already recognized them. That means we have recognized all fundamental documents and their constitution. And constitution determines the borders of Donetsk and Lugansk regions while they were part of Ukraine. But we are counting on, on resolution of all these uh, differences. Um, the, the, these differences will be sorted out before uh, between Kiev government and uh, uh, Lugansk and Donetsk uh, regions. But uh, for the moment, we understand that this is probably impossible uh, in this current situation. But we're hoping for this to happen in the future. So that was somewhat ambiguous. Russia, Putin says, has recognized the entire regions of Donetsk and Luhansk, but he suggests their final borders could be settled in negotiations with Ukraine. Also in that same conference, Putin reiterated his broader demands. The best solution would be for the authorities in Kiev to give up their ambition to join NATO and adopt neutrality. But if our so-called partners pump Ukraine full of modern weapons, a solution will become impossible. So the most important thing is that Ukraine should demilitarize. Whether Putin's recent actions will give Ukraine the confidence to demilitarize is doubtful. In any case, this morning the Russian leader suggested his country was still open to dialogue with the West. Our country stays open for direct and honest dialogue, for the search of diplomatic solutions for the most complex issues. But I will repeat, Russia's interests, our citizens' safety are absolute. So we will continue strengthening and developing our army and navy, increasing their efficiency, providing them with the most advanced equipment. That's the latest from the Kremlin. What are the Ukrainian leadership. Zelensky is today preparing to impose a state of emergency across Ukraine. The country has called up army reservists and it has encouraged Ukrainians currently based in Russia to immediately leave. The blunt truth though is that Ukraine's military will be no match for Russia's. That means the West are relying on sanctions to try and dissuade Putin from going any further into the country. 
For its part, the UK has so far announced sanctions against five Russian banks and three oligarchs. Bill Browder, a UK-based campaigner for Magnitsky sanctions, called the package pretty tepid and pointed out that oligarchs had already been on the US sanctions list since 2018. The US have also announced sanctions. They will be targeting two major Russian banks and the country's sovereign debt, meaning Putin's government can't raise funds on international markets. The US also announced they would be moving additional troops into the Russian bordering NATO member states of Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia. Though President Biden insisted this was purely a defensive measure. Let me be clear. These are totally defensive moves on our part. We have no intention of fighting Russia. We want to send an unmistakable message, though, that the United States, together with our allies, will defend every inch of NATO territory and abide by the commitments we made to NATO. Meanwhile, the EU has announced a list of 27 individuals and entities that have been blacklisted as part of its first tranche of sanctions. They include Putin's chief of staff, his defense minister, two of his deputy prime ministers, and the heads of Russia's navy, army, and air force. All have had their assets frozen and are banned from entering the EU. The most significant cost imposed on Russia so far, though, is the German decision to cancel or at least pause the opening of the gas pipeline Nord Stream 2. In response to that decision, former Russian, Russian President Dmitry Medvedev hit back, saying, Welcome to the brave new world where Europeans are very soon going to pay 2,000 euros for 1,000 cubic meters of natural gas. So, how should we make sense of this escalation from Russia and what is likely to happen next? Earlier today, I spoke to Anatole Levin, a former Times correspondent for the former Soviet Union and author of Ukraine and Russia Fraternal Rivals. Anatol is one of the thinkers who has encouraged the West to compromise with Russia and who sees the latest escalation as principally a consequence of the West's failure to concede on NATO expansion and Ukraine's abandonment of the Minsk Accord. That was the agreement signed between Russia and Ukraine in 2015, which would have guaranteed autonomy but not independence to Donetsk and Luhansk. I kicked off my conversation with Anatol by asking why... If Putin has legitimate motivations, he has relied on lies to justify his actions. Those include the wild claim that Ukraine is committing genocide in the Donbass and the warning that Kiev is developing nuclear weapons. Russia is now engaging in war propaganda, there's no question about it. But um, it did not do so initially in December. As diplomatic efforts fail, so the war propaganda is rising. And yeah, absolutely. Much of Russian propaganda is absolutely mendacious, total lie. Of course, there is no Ukrainian genocide. Of course, Ukraine is not developing nuclear weapons. Uh, but um, on, on the issues of NATO expansion and the Western withdrawal from arms control agreements, or the US withdrawal in some cases, I mean, there Russia does have a, a much more legitimate case. So as always, one has to unpick you know, what is to some degree true in Russia's case and what, what is a lie. If there is war, what would Putin's endgame be? Say there are no concessions made, there are no agreements. He, People are suggesting he could take the whole of Ukraine, occupy Kiev. To me, that just seems so, so costly. I can't see how it could, could work. Where do you see this escalating to? And how would that be in Putin's benefit? Well, there could be a limited escalation in the Donbass. You know, as has been pointed out, the Donbass republics only cover about half, the separatist republics only cover about half uh, the territory uh, of the administrative 
provinces of the Donbass. And so what you could see is, a, I think, a manufactured case, an invented Ukrainian attack, uh, which would then lead to Russia taking more territory in the Donbass, but confining it, its action to the Donbass, and then once again saying to Ukraine and the West, look, we've demonstrated our determination. Can we now talk again? Oh, and by the way, you know, yet again, the West has demonstrated that it won't fight to defend Ukraine. So there could be a limited escalation. But if Russia launches a full-scale invasion of the rest of Ukraine, uh, my own view is, and obviously, you know, I've, I'm not inside Putin's head. Nobody is except Putin. But uh, nothing I'm hearing suggests that Russia would go as far as Kiev or Western Ukraine, uh, because then they would face massive public resistance for sure. And if they tried to prolong their occupation, they would face guerrilla war. They would face massive protests, which they might have to put down by shooting large numbers of people. And above all, I don't think in those areas they would find anybody who would run Ukraine for them. This is not Hungary and Czechoslovakia, where you had, uh, during the Cold War, where you had communist parties you know, in, in place whose officials you could appoint to run the countries. I don't see how they could possibly administer the whole of Ukraine. So my view is that if, God forbid, there is a wider invasion, they will occupy more of the mainly Russian-speaking areas of the east and south of the country, where they would hope, perhaps wrongly, by the way, they could well, very well be wrong about this, that they would have enough local support to be able to create the appearance of a popular government or governments there, uh, as they have in the, in the Donbass. And then we would see what the next move was. It could be, of course, doing what they've done in the Donbass and recognizing the independence of these places and therefore permanently breaking up Ukraine. Uh, or it could be an offer to reunify Ukraine, but on the basis of federalism and neutrality. In other words, we will withdraw you know, all our troops, but the Russian-speaking areas have to have autonomy. Ukraine becomes a federation, effectively, which, from a Russian point of view, would guarantee that Russia would have a permanent state within Ukraine and block Ukraine's movement towards the West. Which of those two options Russia would adopt in the event of an invasion? I do not know. And by the way, the thing about wars is, as from vast majority of wars, including, of course, America's wars over the past generation, you never know in advance how they're going to turn out. And by the way, how they turn out at the start, as in Afghanistan and Iraq, may look totally different from how they turn out later on. So much, obviously, would depend in the event of war on how the war goes, how hard the Ukrainian army fights, whether Russia does have uh, any real support in the areas of Ukraine it occupies. We would have to, to see, but an awful lot would depend simply on the course of the war. We've seen the first tranche of, of sanctions from the United States, from the EU and from Britain. Do any of those strike you as, as the kind of sanctions that could affect Putin's reasoning? Do you think there are any sanctions that would affect Putin's reasoning in this case? These sanctions won't, no. I mean, the threat of much deeper sanctions, I think, you know, has uh, affected Russia's reasoning. You know, after all, uh, it is now two months since the original Russian Dimash. And it's, you know, a long time since, from Russia's point of view, the Minsk process has, has died. So clearly, the, the threat of intensified sanctions has affected Russian behavior. But, I mean, if 
Russia decides to go to war, then it will do so in the conviction that it will face much heavier sanctions. Of course, there is one other point to be made, which is that NATO, the US, the USA, all NATO governments have made, you know, have stated explicitly again and again, we are not going to fight to defend Ukraine. We've even withdrawn our diplomats from Ukraine. American diplomats have moved to the far west of the country and have been told to sleep in Poland because it's too dangerous now to sleep in Ukraine. Now, at that point, what on earth does keeping open an offer of a possible offer of future NATO membership to Ukraine mean? If it is absolutely certain that we will never fight Russia, I mean, what, what, what is this nonsense? To, to be honest, I mean, I, I've, you know, you, you talked about Russian propaganda. Well, there is also mendacious Western propaganda, and this particular part of Western propaganda seems to be virtually surreal in its um, open insincerity. If we're not going to fight to defend Ukraine, then we're not going to offer NATO membership to Ukraine. It's as simple as that. That was Anatole Levin speaking to me earlier today. Is Putin thinking straight and is he getting decent advice? A televised meeting of Russia's Security Council on Monday got lots of people worried. At the meeting, all of his key advisors were asked their opinion on recognising the independence of Donetsk and Luhansk. The whole affair was highly choreographed and it seemed impossible for Putin's advisers to disagree with their boss. Now, that wasn't just any underling that Putin was humiliating in front of the world. It was the head of Russia's spy agency. He's a hardliner, usually considered a close Putin ally. Aaron, I want your thoughts on this. Normally, I tend to be fairly suspicious of those arguments. Say, oh, it's this foreign leader. He's irrational. He's gone mad. We should dismiss all of their demands out of hand. Of course, this isn't about NATO moving eastwards. This is just someone who is drunk on power. As I say, I'm usually suspicious of those arguments. At the same time, it does seem like Putin is potentially in a little bit of a bunker right now. And if I were one of his allies, I don't know how comfortable I'd feel challenging whatever decisions he's been making. Yeah, I mean, the cliche is about people like Putin or Kim Jong-un or any sort of, not tyrant necessarily, because sometimes they're sort of given the veneer of democratic legitimacy like Putin. But clearly, authoritarian has centralized a great deal of power make something of a mockery of democratic practices. Often they're sort of depicted as, like you say, irrational, crazed, unhinged, unhinged, unable to sort of think rationally over the short, medium or long term. Often it's the complete opposite. To, to get to the very top of a political system, which is often not based on, on, on rules and due process, fair play, although you would say the same applies to the UK right now. Uh, often those people are the most rational, strategic, people you can imagine. They're the people least likely to take an overly risky choice when the overhead is particularly high. And, and that is the case when you invade foreign entity. You know, there are major downsides. So people like that tend not to be as unhinged and deranged as they're sort of painted in, in the popular culture depictions that we're often subject to. And they're, they're very, very thoughtful. I'm not saying they're good people. I'm not saying they're intelligent people, but they're thoughtful. And they're generally risk averse. They're far more risk averse than, again, we give them credit for. There's a reason why a lot of wars and conflict over the last 70 years have been started by multi-party liberal democracies and fewer by belligerent one-party states, like I say. By virtue of what it is, it gives a, a greater rise to risk aversion. Because, of course, if you lose, you're screwed. Everything goes. That's not the case for George W. Bush. wasn't the case for Tony Blair. So that's true. All that said, he did look kind of crazy, Michael. 
and like you say, he's talking there to the, to the, the head of what Russia, Russia's equivalent of MI5 is, its internal security agency, who was mumbling, couldn't finish sentences, and then towards the end, literally answered the wrong question on which they were all talking. And there's a part of it where I think, I don't think this was choreographed, anything but, I mean, my God, if that was the case, then this guy needs to win a, Sergei needs to win a, an Oscar. But there's a part of it where you, you do see over the last 10, 15 years, videos of Putin going into workplaces, setting bosses straight, talking to oligarchs, giving them a dressing down. And it is performative and it's clearly for public consumption and it's building and projecting a certain image of Vladimir Putin as a, as a political leader to the Russian electorate. This looked like that, but it wasn't choreographed. It wasn't planned. It didn't seem to be anyway. And what it did remind me of was Saddam Hussein. There's that sort of iconic uh, video where you see Saddam Hussein, basically his his coup within the Ba'ath Party of Iraq in the 70s, and his rivals are taken from their seats in the audience by the police, and he's just sort of smoking a cigar, and you can't see them. You know, they're sort of dragged away by the police. They're screaming, and you just see him. And it, it kind of reminded me of that. It kind of had a Tony Montana in Scarface vibe to it, Michael. And I think I think for a lot of us, watching that, watching that alongside the content of the speech he gave that same day, even for people like you and I, who are very, often very skeptical of sort of you know, Western rhetoric with, with regards to foreign policy outcomes and so on, you look at that, you think, shit, this could really escalate. This could really escalate. And like you say, it's an important, germane question to ask. He's getting older. He's been in charge for a long time. You know, very few people exercise that amount of political power for that long and sort of go to the grave without any major fuck-ups, which he's not really had. So it's perfectly plausible something strange happens, yes. I suppose I should, because I, I, I said that was, was choreographed in my introduction, so you've, you've sort of dissed my introduction to that clip. To defend myself, when I say it's, it's choreographed, I suppose what I mean isn't that it's scripted, but that that was mm. presented, officially what that was, was Putin having a meeting with his security council where he got all of his leadership team to, to give him their opinion on whether or not he should go into oh, recognise the independence of, of Donetsk and, and Luhansk. So it wasn't scripted, but it wasn't actually, it wasn't a genuine meeting. I, I think that the purpose no, no. of that was essentially for, for Vladimir Putin to say, look, even if you've got doubts in private, all of you will publicly tell me you think it's a good idea because I don't want you to blame well, me if this goes wrong. You're, we're all in this together. Well, yeah, sorry. What, what I was saying was, I don't think it was choreographed, was him mumbling and being unable to finish sentences. I don't think he did that in order to give the impression of Putin being the strong man and everybody scared of him. I mean, it was so farcical, it might have appeared that way because we've seen videos in the past, for instance, of workers in factories not getting pay. Putin goes in, sits down with the bosses. He says, you're going to give them their pay and you're going to give them a pay rise. Clearly, you know, it's propaganda really for public consumption. There's something very strange going on, you know, what, why are all these cameras here? Why is he wearing makeup while he's doing this? And so on? Yeah, it's quite funny. This wasn't that, but my God, it could have been. It was very compelling. Why it was so awkward, I think, is probably because as someone who's a member of Russia's Security Council, if you had any doubts about Putin's decision to take this incredibly provocative action towards Ukraine, you either had to sort of express your doubts in that meeting in front of the cameras, after which you would be humiliated like that spy chief was, or you have to go in gung-ho and say, even if I've got my doubts, I'm going to pretend I'm really in on this because then at least I won't look weak. And if you think it's going to go wrong, neither of those options are good because if you go in gung-ho and say, this is great, then you're worried it's all going to go wrong and you're going to seem incredibly implicated. But that spy chief, I don't think after this, he's going to be able to say, well, I always did, couldn't you tell? I thought it was a bad idea because then people are going to say, yeah, we could kind of tell, but also you were pathetic. 
So it's, I, I think that probably was smart by Vladimir Putin in terms of even if you disagree with me, I'm not going to allow an alternate power base to arise. You're either going to say you agree with me publicly or I'm going to humiliate you publicly. And I think that's what was going on there. Let's go on to our next story. When Vladimir Putin attempts to justify his annexation of Crimea, or now the invasion of the Donbass, he tends to fall back on one argument. These are places which are historically Russian, which are home to ethnic Russians, and which contain Russian speakers. It was a theme he returned to in his hour-long speech on Monday. There he said... I would like to emphasize again that Ukraine is not just a neighboring country for us. It is an inalienable part of our own history, culture, and spiritual space. These are our comrades, our dearest to us, not only colleagues, friends, and people who once served together, but also relatives, people bound by blood, by family ties. Since time immemorial, the people living in the southwest of what has historically been Russian land have called themselves Russians and Orthodox Christians couple of possible responses to these kinds of arguments. The first is to question their factual validity. And on this front, I have to admit, I'm no expert on the ethnic and cultural histories of of Russia and Ukraine. The other response is to question how and why Putin is deploying these claims about ethnic and cultural heritage. In other words, even if Putin's factual claims were correct, could that possibly justify an invasion? On that latter question, Kenya's envoy to the United Nations, Martin Kamani, has gained plaudits for this speech at an emergency meeting of the UN Security Council. Kenya and almost every African country was birthed by the ending of empire. Our borders were not of our own drawing. They were drawn in the distant colonial metropoles of London, Paris and Lisbon, with no regard for the ancient nations that they cleaved apart. Today, across the border of every single African country live our countrymen with whom we share deep historical, cultural, and linguistic bonds. At independence, had we chosen to pursue states on the basis of ethnic, racial, or religious homogeneity, we would still be waging bloody wars these many decades later. Instead, we agreed that we would settle for the borders that we inherited but we would still pursue continental political, economic, and legal integration. Rather than form nations that looked ever backwards into history with a dangerous nostalgia, we chose to look forward to a greatness none of our many nations and peoples had ever known. We chose to follow the rules of the Organization of African Unity and the United Nations Charter, not because our borders satisfied us, but because we wanted something greater forged in peace. We believe that all states formed from empires that have collapsed or retreated have many peoples in them yearning for integration with peoples in neighboring states. This is normal and understandable. After all, who does not want to be joined to their brethren and to make common purpose with them? However, Kenya rejects such a yearning from being pursued by force. We must complete our recovery from the embers of dead empires in a way that does not plunge us back into new forms of domination and oppression. We rejected irredentism and expansionism 
on any basis, including racial, ethnic, religious, or cultural factors. We, reg- we reject it again today. It has gained widespread praise. It's been viewed over 4 million times on Twitter, more on, on other social media platforms. Aaron, what did you make of it? I thought it was, um, I thought it was quite moving, actually. And, and the, the, the overt rejection of irredentism, as he calls it, which is to say, you know, there is a, a nation state, which is an expression of a certain nation of a people, which is ethnically, linguistically homogenous. And there is a part of it which remains um, unredeemed, which needs to be taken back. So uh, you can think about, for instance, uh, Italy, before the First World War, was looking to the north, was looking to bits of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it was looking to Croatia, the Dalmatian coast. This is really, quote-unquote, Italian. And of course, many, many countries have potentially, quote-unquote, irredentist claims. You might remember, I think, two years ago, Dua Lipa tweeted an image of Greater Albania. You know, there are, there are questions around, um, yeah, Greater Greece, Greater Macedonia. There was a great image a few years ago, Le Monde Diplomatique, and they had sort of overlapping, you know, greater countries in, um, in the Aegean and the, and the, and the Balkans. So it is an issue. And for, and for a statesperson or a politician in the 21st century to make that overt repudiation of it, I think is very important. And I think that's right. You know, the way that borders now work in, in the aftermath of the collapse of empires, not just Europe's colonial empires in Africa, but of course, you know, the Russian empire, for instance, what we're seeing right now is, is, is partly, is partly the expression of that. You have ethnic Koreans in China and Manchuria, north of the North Korean border. You have ethnic Russians in Latvia. You have ethnic Germans in um, other parts of Europe, and I believe even in, in, in the Baltic states. So you used to have many ethnic Greeks in Turkey. You know, the Turkish coast since around 100 years ago was primarily ethnic Greeks. And I, I think he's right. You know, we can't really, we can't really accept the claim that this is not a legitimate border because people from this ethnic group, from this neighboring country, you know, rather than them move or rather than that state simply be a multicultural polity, we should, we should take it because it's actually ours. I think, Christ, if you, if you want to go down that route, then, you know, we're, we're going to have a lot more conflicts in the 21st century than uh, even the 20th, which is saying something. I think it's, it's got plaudits very, very justifiably. I think most people sharing it have, have pointed out how, how successful a riposte it is to Vladimir Putin on this. Look, even if there are Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine, if we start changing borders just because of people's ethnicities, we're going to have a, a war of all against all. He's saying, yes, you're arguing in your speech as sort of Putin is, that you know our borders are kind of arbitrary. That was the point of his hour-long history lesson. He sort of said, well, the borders of Russia, you know, it was just because of this political decision by Lenin and then this decision by Khrushchev. And ultimately, they made a bad call so I can reverse it all. You know, that, that's the argument he's making. And what the ambassador to Kenya is saying is, is look, who do you think made our borders, right? Our, our borders were made by colonialists. That's even more arbitrary than your borders, but we don't try and change them because we recognize that if we tried to change them, it would be a disaster for everyone involved. So I think very successful riposte to Putin. I do think there was a part of it which was somewhat under-discussed, though, because it serves a little bit as a riposte to, to NATO and the EU, because what he said is basically a, a precondition of not questioning these borders, of being able to, to work together as nations, as, as multicultural nations, where you've got ethnic groups which span borders, is economic, legal, political integration between those countries. And... What I think you could legitimately argue from the Russian side is that they tried to have a situation whereby Ukraine would be, to some degree, 
integrated with, with Russia. As we've talked about before in this show, in 2014, the Ukrainian president was deciding on whether to sign a sort of economic agreement with Russia or sign an economic agreement with the Europeans. Russia at that point suggested, you know, why don't we all get together and negotiate and we'll have a system whereby Ukraine can be economically associated to both of us. The Europeans said, no, we don't want to do that. We don't, we don't need to do that. And that was actually sort of the basis of, of that crisis in, in 2014, where you had the Maidan and, and the coup. As we said before, the coup, you can, you can argue it was justified because the president was, was shooting lots of people. But essentially what I'm saying is the West hasn't done very well at ensuring that Ukraine can be a place which is integrated both to Europe and to Russia. In fact, I think it's actively stood in the way of that. And NATO is a similar issue, right? What the argument that's that, that's made by people where they say we should have a compromise with Russia is to say, look, we need to recognize that Ukraine has these historic ties to Russia, which means that it should have some sort of neutral role whereby it has relationships with, with Europe and it has relationships to Russia. But it isn't purely within the orbit of the West, because we can understand why that would make you feel insecure, both culturally, but significantly in this, in this sense, militarily. So I do think there are lessons for the West there in that speech. And I suppose the final thing to say is you could watch that from the Russian perspective and say, look at all these Westerners sharing this. What hypocrisy. Remember the last time there was a conflict in Europe, which was because there were people of, of different ethnicities that didn't feel like their current borders sufficiently represented their ethnic nationhood. So sort of the former Yugoslavia, the West came in then, rightly or wrongly, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying they acted in the wrong there, but they said, oh, Kosovo, look, it might be part of Serbia, but these are an ethnic group that don't really want to be part of Serbia. Obviously, you know, the argument for why it was justified to intervene is that the, the Serbians had been committing ethnic cleansing. So I, again, I'm not here to say that was a terrible intervention. But what I'm saying is that the West have intervened on the side of people who did want to redraw political maps because of the, the distribution of, of, of ethnic group. So I don't know, I think it's, it's, it's more complex than lots of the people who've just sort of shared that saying, yes, this is why Putin's wrong. No, I totally agree, Michael. Look, you know, what the EU wants and what certain sort of hawks want is for the whole of the Ukraine to be in NATO, the whole of Ukraine to be in the European Union. And it's undeniable that there is a, a majority of people in these two new independent states which don't want to be entirely in the orbit of Europe and cut off from Russia. That's undeniable. But the, the extent of that legitimacy is what's in question. There were two referenda for Donetsk and Luhansk in 2014. In both referenda, overwhelmingly, they vote for independence. Now, the question is about turnout. In terms of local authorities, they say turnouts in you know, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the Ukrainian Central Committee, it's actually much lower. What they don't contest is that an overwhelming majority of people want independence. Now, you can't, on the one hand, say that, therefore, and by the way, I, I think this is choreographed by the Kremlin and so on, so I'm not, I'm not suggesting Putin is sending in peacekeepers. But you can't, on the one hand, say... Well, when Kosovo unilaterally declares independence, and that's then recognized by many countries, not all, I should say, to this day, as I understand it, Spain, Mexico, India, Argentina, and other perfectly, you know, I think we regard these as normal countries, India is the world's largest democracy, do not recognize Kosovo as an independent state. Why? Because it really opens a Pandora's box when it comes to the fragmentation and disintegration of pretty much every country out there, if that's now a norm. And so I think, you know, you do have to reflect on the attitudes and the policy choices 
of Western elites in the late 1990s, early noughties, with the fragmentation of Yugoslavia, you look at Kosovo and you say, there's a contradiction here, right? You can't, on the one hand, say that this group can unilaterally, and by the way, the ICJ in 2010, I believe, said that what they did was, was legal. And when it was declared as legal, the Serbian president at the time said, well, if that's legal, you've got a lot of problems over the next 10, 20, 30 years because this is going to happen repeatedly. And guess what? He was right. So, yes, of course, you have a right to self-determination. But there is an issue here where you have a, the, the lines between civil war, breakaway states and legitimacy are, are very permeable, are very, very permeable. And so it is just it does boil down to a question of interpretation. If you think that what's happening in Donetsk and Luhansk is illegitimate, but Kosovo was legitimate, you've got to explain why. And I think actually for many people, that's that's not really easy to do. And I think in, in, in retrospect, Western policy elites, like I say, made major mistakes. And that's what we see repeatedly from people like Peter Hitchens or even your guest earlier on, Michael. In the mid-90s and the late 90s, the Russian elite were perfectly happy in a, a new global order where they play second fiddle, where they're not a major power, but they also have their interests broadly respected. And that's not what happened. I think Peter Hitchens, he's a conservative, I disagree with him on many, many things. But I think he's right about this. At the, the sort of height of Cold War, post-Cold War euphoria, Western policy elites, against their own rational long-term self-interest, made choices which I think we're going to be paying for for a very long time. Not just in 2022 with these two breakaway republics. I think, you know, you can't talk about a rules-based international system when you do what we did with Kosovo. You can't. There's a problem there. And so there's going to have to be, there's, that's got to be revisited and the contradictions are going to have to be addressed, particularly if, if the West, if, if, if the European Union, the Brits, the Americans want to be seen as, as fair. And I think it's really important to say here, Michael, asking for coherence is not the same as being an apologist for Putin. Because I believe and I agree with the claim that we do need a rules-based international order. I, I agree with that point. But you know what? That's entirely implausible if you have the world's leading military, political, economic power, the United States and its allies, not playing by the rules they ask others to play by. You can't have a rules-based international order. You can't. And it was only in 2020, I believe, that you had the Iraqi government, the sovereign Iraqi government, asking the United States military to leave the country. The parliament of Iraq asked the US to leave. They didn't. So again, we're talking about sovereignty and self-determination. You can't just pick and choose on these things, which is why I think the left has a really valuable point to make here and why it's being besmirched and libeled by the establishment, which is, look, if we want to apply high standards and we want global consensus around certain things, guess what? We're going to have to play by those rules as well. And in Washington and in London, particularly in light of the last 20, 30 years of foreign policy choices, the war on terror, Iraq, Afghanistan, Kosovo, Libya, no thank you. Because if we accept that you're right, then we've been wrong for the last 30 years. I mean, Christ, Michael, NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is Libya near the North Atlantic? Was the war in Libya in 2011 defensive? The fact that now a couple of hundred miles from you know, Italy, we've got a country which has open air slave markets? which was the result of a NATO intervention. Was that the result of a defensive intervention? Was that defending against Russian aggression? So come on, let's be reasonable here. And I think that's the territory the left has to stay on and speak about and not be cowed because we're right.
we, we need to move on. But I suppose, you know, an attempt you could make to say why was the independence of Kosovo legitimate but not the independence of Donbass is I think the movement for the independence of Kosovo was much more organic than the movement for the independence of, of Donbass, which I do think was, you know, Russia were clearly pulling the strings. Also, there was genuine evidence of the Serbians having committed ethnic cleansing. And I don't think there is that kind of genuine evidence of of the Ukrainians doing the same. So, I mean, you can make the argument that there are differences, but in terms of this broad, oh, no, we have to accept borders as they are, yeah, it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. And Aaron, you're absolutely right to say that when it comes to to what the West want to do and what NATO want to do, international law just tends to absolutely go out of the window, which is why it's very difficult to say, you can't do this because it's against international law, because when we wanted to do it, we did it anyway. Michael, but I'm not, look, I'm not saying... You can't say Kosovo has to have an independent state to stop a genocide. We, we bombed Belgrade. NATO bombed Belgrade. You know, you effectively get rid of the, the, the political apparatus of, of the Serbian government and you, you stop that. You could, you could stop that without saying we are giving, we are recognizing your, you know, declaration of independence as a country. And like I say, many countries have a Michael, Mexico. Uh, I don't want to go over them all again. India, you know, Argentina. And I would also say, Michael, look, in the West, we say, well, if you want to guarantee the rule of law and democratic rights, you need to be multicultural polities. It's important that you can... Have, I believe in that. Christ, Michael, I'm Iranian. I'm British Iranian. I hope that's the case. A successful modern country has people of different ethnic backgrounds living together in the same country. Why can Serbia be like that? Why can't that be the demand for Serbia? Why can not Serbia be a country that encompasses ethnic Albanians? Oh, no, actually for them, no, the ethnic Albanians in that country, they have to have their own country. And I agree with you, that was an organic demand. Christ, the cost of a liberation army. It was serious people, right? Of course, and it's coming out of a context of 10 years of civil war and, and, and the breakdown of Yugoslavia. But the principle still sounds, Michael. You can't on the one hand say the best defense of rights and diversity and tolerance is a multicultural, liberal, democratic state. On the other hand, every time an ethnic minority wants to declare independence, yep, you go for it. Where's the coherence there? I do think you're absolutely right on that point. You're also right to make that distinction between you know intervening and accepting that it's, that it's an independent state. Um, let's move on to our next very much related story. Donald Trump may no longer be president, but that doesn't mean we can no longer concern ourselves with what he has to say. That's in part because he still retains a massive following. More significantly, there's a decent chance he could return to the White House in 2024. He's currently the bookie's favorite to win in two years' time. That all means there were a few eyebrows raised by the former president's recent statements about Vladimir Putin. He made them to podcasters Clay Travis and Buck Sexton. Mr. President, in the last 24 hours, we know Russia has said that they are recognizing two breakaway regions of Ukraine. And now this White House is stating that this is an invasion. That's a strong word. What went wrong here? What has the current occupant of the Oval Office done that he could have done differently? Well, what? went wrong was a rigged election. And what went wrong is a candidate that shouldn't be there and a man that has no concept of what he's doing. I went in yesterday and there was a television screen and I said, this is genius. Putin declares a big portion of the Ukraine, of Ukraine. Putin declares it as independent. Oh, that's wonderful. So Putin is now saying it's independent, a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. That's the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. That's the strongest peace force I've ever seen. There were more army tanks than I've ever seen. They're going to keep peace all right. No, but think of it. Here's a guy who's very savvy. I know him very well, very, very well. By the way, this never would have happened with us 
Had I been in office, not even thinkable. This would never have happened. But here's a guy that says, you know, uh, I'm going to declare a big portion of Ukraine independent. He used the word independent. And we're going to go out and we're going to go in and we're going to help keep peace. You got to say that's pretty savvy. And you know what the response was from Biden? There was no response. They didn't have one for that. Now it's very sad. That was Donald Trump calling Putin's recognition of the independence of parts of Ukraine savvy and genius. It's got a lot of Trump's critics worrying what would happen in Eastern Europe if Trump were to get re-elected. Aaron, what did you make of his comments and what did you make of the sort of backlash following them? Yeah, there's a few things with Trump takes on, on Russia and Ukraine that I kind of, I don't really understand. People are saying Putin can't wait for Trump to get back in the White House. To do what? Like... I, I don't quite get it. And, and people are saying, oh, well, Trump, when Trump's there, he'll, he'll help Putin. They took Crimea in 2014 under the Democrats, and now they're playing silly buggers again. They went to war against Georgia in 2008. That certainly wasn't under uh, Donald Trump. There's this weird elevation, I think it's because of social media. People seem to care more about stupid remarks like what he's made there. People think that's more evidence of a sort of political reality than actual things that happen which is, well, Putin's doing it right now, the Democrat in the White House. I'm not blaming Biden. I don't think it would make much difference to whoever's in the White House. I think he, I think probably Putin would be a little bit more inhibited with Trump because the guy's just so crazy. And I think the argument against Trump winning the next election after, what, 2024 is that Christ, you know, Professor Paul, who was it you had him recently, Michael? Paul Rogers, Paul yeah. Rogers. He, he talked about, yeah, he talked about when you're in dangerous territory when you're looking at sort of iconoclasts and mavericks and they're the people that determine certain outcomes and Christ, you know, two of the world's two big nuclear powers, Putin and Trump, that would be dangerous. In terms of the, he just get, he gives crazy interviews, Michael, and often they don't have any material consequences. Sometimes they do, you know, increase in racist attacks or whatever, but you know, he was talking, when he was talking Kim Jong-un, rocket man, we had the press call saying that this is going to, lead to a nuclear conflict between the US and North Korea. It meant nothing of the sort. I think this is just uh, too many people online. And Trump knows it, Michael, and this is what he lives for. And expect a lot more of this ahead of the midterms, by the way, in November. I don't think anything that Trump said was particularly surprising in any way. I do think the question of, you know, obviously we have seen him in power for four years, so it's not a complete mystery. But there are risks that he poses that another president doesn't. Now, I think probably Putin would be less likely to have done this if Trump was, was president, as you say, because he's so unpredictable. And Biden is quite predictable. So I think Putin sort of knew exactly what the, the response would be from the West. And he's sort of willing to take it. He's willing to take a few sanctions because he sees this as in his vital national security interests. And so it will only really be repelled by sort of military action. Not that I'm saying military action should, should happen. I would prefer negotiation on this question. But with, with Trump, I think the danger is the opposite one to what these guys are saying, which is, oh, he loves Putin, so he's going to let Putin get whatever he wants. I think potentially he could give Putin the impression that he's, it's okay for him to do something, potentially by explicitly saying it's okay to do that, and then responding in a you know, very rash way. And the, the thing that really worries me if he were to get back in power when it comes to, to foreign policy is the case of Qasem Soleimani. Because what happened there as far as I understand it, is what you get as an American president is when there is a, you know, a foreign policy problem that the president is, is deemed to, to have to solve. You have the security services who, who come up with a sort of menu of what you can do. And at the top of the menu, there is, or the bottom, wherever they put it in the menu, there's a very extreme option. And it goes from sort of extreme to incredibly moderate. And the president normally chooses somewhere in the middle, but they never choose the extreme one. So you can imagine maybe Biden got a, got a menu that sort of said one option is nuking 
Moscow or one option is, is sending troops to Ukraine. And because they know Biden's going to go for the moderate one, but it could be the case that Trump, sometimes he'll, he'll push the don't do anything button. Why do we care about Ukraine? And I'm worried that sometimes he'll push the sort of like, yeah, let's send troops in. And then that's when you've got your world war, your world war free. So I'm worried about him choosing from that menu. Let's move on. A lot to cover still. Liz Truss has been talking tough when it comes to Russian sanctions, but noticeably, none of those sanctions apply to Tory donors. That applies even when they have close connections to Putin's inner circle. On BBC Breakfast, Liz Truss was asked to respond to a photo of her standing with Theresa May and a wealthy Russian who donated £1.7 million to her party. And this was from your Instagram. I think the, the thing you posted with this was, was ladies' night. There you are, next to Theresa May. Uh, next to, on the other side of Theresa May is uh, Lubov Janurkin, who's the wife of a former Russian minister who's given the Conservative Party more than £1.8 million. That makes her the biggest female donor in recent British political history. Her wealth comes from her husband, Vladimir, who has strong links to the Kremlin. Now, in that picture, there are, at the time, there were six female cabinet members. Liz Truss, that shows us, doesn't it, that the closeness of the British government to Russian money. What, what I can say to you today is that we will target anybody who we believe has links to the Putin regime, uh, who is helping support and prop up uh, the, the Putin government, and nothing is off the table in terms of who we target. Are you embarrassed by seeing photographs like that? No, I'm not. I, I, um, I attended uh, the dinner uh, at the time. Uh, I make my decisions as Foreign Secretary on the basis of what is right. And as I've said, without prejudice, we will target anybody who is of interest uh, in terms of the Russian regime, who is helping prop up uh, Vladimir Putin's appalling regime and... No, there are no other considerations as far as I'm concerned. Do you think that the money that has been donated to the Conservative Party should be given back? As I've said, there is money donated to the Conservative Party. Everybody who donates is on the British Electoral Register. Uh, they are fully vetted before making those donations. I think it's very important that we don't conflate people with Russian heritage and Russian background with people who are close to the Putin regime. Liz Truss is, of course, absolutely right. We shouldn't conflate anyone with Russian heritage with people close to the Putin regime. But the Tory donor Truss was photographed with wasn't just any old Russian. She is the wife of Vladimir Chanukin, who served as Putin's deputy finance minister from 2000 to 2002. After that, he became head of a Russian state development bank. He was removed from that post in 2004, but he then moved to the UK, becoming a citizen in 2011. Significantly, in 2020, the BBC reported that Vladimir Chanukin received $8 million from a politician facing US sanctions due to his closeness to the Kremlin. However, while Truss thinks accepting a couple million pounds from a Russian oligarch is unproblematic, she's been doling out advice to others on how to get tough on Russia. When I told my listeners you were coming on, there was a flurry of emails and questions. One I'll just put to you, Henry in Highbury, uh, should the football match go ahead in St. Petersburg, the UEFA final? What's your view, yes no. or no? No. Simple as that. If an England team were to get through, should they boycott it? 
If I was on the England team, I would boycott it. So or you, on an English team, sorry. I mean, I have to say, if you were playing centre forward for Chelsea, it might interest some of the fans. List trust it would be an int- <laughs> it would be an interesting selection. But you you would urge the manager if they I've didn't. Never, re- I've never I've never had the call, Nick. <laughs> but I would t- personally. You could be having the call for many top jobs. List trust. Let's be I, honest I, about I, it. I I would personally not want to be playing in a football match in St Petersburg, given what the Putin regime is doing. And you would urge the manager to consider a boycott were an English team to be successful in the stages to get to the final? Yes. So let's get this straight. If Liz Truss was a football player, she'd boycott a St. Petersburg match. But in her job, which she actually has as Foreign Secretary for the Conservative Party, she's more than happy to accept million-pound donations from someone who is married to someone who has recently accepted millions of dollars from a close Putin ally. Aaron, can you make it make sense for me? Michael, it makes no sense. We had a World Cup in, uh, in 2018. It was in Russia. Putin hasn't changed dramatically in the last several years, right? I mean, okay, the, the events of the last week are significant, but Crimea was in 2014, and I, I don't quite see the difference. And I think also, we've got a World Cup coming up, Michael, in Qatar. And I think if you're not going to have the, a final of a European tournament in Russia... Presumably, you're also saying that we should be boycotting Russian teams because you'll have to play the away leg in a Russian stadium, I presume. By the way, I don't think the World Cup should be in Qatar. That's my answer to you. But where's, where's the coherence here? You know, you're looking at more than a thousand workers. I don't know the exact figures. I think it's way more than that, actually. But huge numbers of workers were in four figures, I think, in terms of worker fatalities. Building the stadium in Qatar ahead of the World Cup this winter. Why is that acceptable? But, but this isn't. This whole sort of double logic you get with the Tories. Oh, we can't have politics and football when it comes to BLM. Oh, but the second the Russians or the Chinese are involved, you can't get politics and football quick enough. But simultaneously, oh, we can't politicise political funding. Come on. Not serious. And also, Mike, I've got a question for you. You know, he, he was saying, Liz Trust, you're getting the call for lots of top jobs. Where is this coming from? Why is everybody touting her as a future? To- I mean, what am I missing here, Michael? Tell me. I hope she becomes the next Tory leader because I, 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 I think she's got no chance of winning a general election. But people, she's popular with the Tory base, but not as popular as Rishi Sunak, so it's not going to happen. What I'd add to what you've said is you're right. This is, you know, it's, it's the Conservatives focusing on a headline grabbing policy. This is even a policy, but a headline grabbing demand, which is to say, move the final of the Champions League and not what would actually make a difference, which is sanctioning oligarchs in London. Um, and I, I, mm. I don't want to speak about any specific oligarch, but we know that oligarchs in in London are often tasked with sort of basically locating Putin's money so that he's got his assets nicely spread around. But the other issue is is this other classic Tory thing, which is to say, we're not going to make any sacrifices. Yeah, we're not going to give up the 1.7 million pounds that these people are giving to us. But if you've worked your whole life to become a footballer and the pinnacle of your career is or would be playing in the Champions League final, you you shouldn't do that. You know, you'd be a bad person if you played in the final of one of the most prestigious games in the sport, which is sort of like your life purpose. But we're not going to give up mm. £1.7 million from this, this Russian oligarch. Kind of reminds me of them all saying, oh, you should not ask for increased pay for the sake of inflation, even though we're not going to make any of our mates, or indeed, you know, the assets that lots of them, them hold. They're not going to try and, and, and not try and shrink that anymore. They're not going to spread that around. It's do as I say, not as I do, isn't it? Yeah. And also, like you said, Michael, I think for me, as a, as a European, although, you know, I don't say that like the sort of 
hashtag FPPE people, but as a European, the European Champions League final is the biggest game in, in club football, right? I mean, uh, I'm sure that people in South America that watch the Copa Libertadores might disagree or whatever, but I, I think it is. Like you said, it's the pinnacle of your professional achievements, unless you go to a World Cup final. I think actually for a lot of players, the Champions League is probably in some ways more important, really. And also, by the way, Michael, there's a decent chance an English club makes it to the Champions League final. I really want to hold the Tories' feet to fire on this. Really. I mean, if it's che- Christ, can you imagine if it's uh, Chelsea? If, if it's Roman Abramovich's Chelsea playing in a Champions League final in Russia, and there's a lot of Chelsea, you know, Chelsea supporting London black cab drivers, Michael, who are Tory fanatics, they won't be happy. And we know that when the Tories try and take on footballers, it, it doesn't tend to go well for them. So yeah, for that reason, even though I, I, I don't really watch the Champions League, I'm, I'm rooting for any English team that could get to the final. Which teams are in the competition still, Aaron? You've got uh, Liverpool, Chelsea, Man City, Man United. I think realistically three of them will get through to the next round. Maybe maybe all of them. I mean, Man United are playing Atletico. So there's a strong chance you'll have at least one English finalist. You know, it says probable, actually. So Tories creating problems themselves down the line here. Let's go to our final story. For the first time in British history, a sitting prime minister has been questioned under police caution as part of the Metropolitan Police investigation into 12 parties that took place in Downing Street during lockdown. 88 people, including Boris Johnson, received a police questionnaire. And thanks to a leak to ITV, we've seen the contents of that questionnaire. It includes this. You do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defence if you do not mention when questioned something which you subsequently rely on in court. Anything you do say may be given in evidence. That statement means that the questionnaire is equivalent in law to a formal police interview. The leak also revealed the questions respondents had to answer. They include, did you participate in a gathering at 10 Downing Street? What was the purpose of your participation? Did you interact with or undertake any activity with other persons present? What time did you attend? What time did you leave? And what reasonable excuse did you have for attending? They're questions which don't sound too tough. They don't sound too tricky to answer. And former Met Chief Superintendent Del Babu was unimpressed. They're pretty bland questions. I think a lawyer would perhaps give you a, a get-out-of-jail card response to all of those questions. Um, and that's why it doesn't seem to be a particularly effective way of in- investigating the parties that happened at uh, Downing Street. What you would expect is somebody to sit down with uh, an, the individual, go through the questions. Johnson, of course, did hire a lawyer specifically to help him complete that questionnaire, and he has already returned the form to the police. It means he becomes the first ever prime minister to be interviewed under caution. He, he does have one predecessor who came close. That was Tony Blair. In 2007, he was interviewed by the police as a witness during the Cash for Honours scandal, but Blair's was an informal interview, and he said that if police did want to interview him under caution, he would have to resign. Aaron, the first prime minister ever to be interviewed under police caution. It's, you know, it's, it sounds like it's a, it's a dramatic headline. Does any of this matter, though? It's also a bit lib, Michael. You know, it's a bit of a lib headline because, I mean, let's be real. Many, m- many prime ministers should have been interviewed under a police caution. I think Blair should have been interviewed under a police caution. And I think the big story for me is, Michael, is that politically, Boris Johnson, the Conservatives don't think it's a big deal. That, for me, is a major point. But the idea that somehow he's behaving in a way which is unprecedented in British politics, yes and no. 
I think the manner in which the Blair the Blair Ministry operated from 1907 till 2007 did some pretty bad things. And if people go, oh, God, Aaron's trashing Blair, Google Drapergate, Derek Draper, cash for access, super early on in the, in the Blair government. I'm not even talking about Iraq. You know, you have people on the record, special advisors saying that changing policy in, in the interest of big multinationals like Tesco, they're saying that. They're saying we've changed this piece of legislation because we're being paid by these people to do it. You know, two journalists, Greg Pallast in particular, uh, great stories, I think, in The Observer at the time and also in Medi Newsnight. Uh, but this is a matter of record. I think clearly that didn't involve Blair in terms of he should have been Christmas the police caution. I think Iraq, he most certainly... I think he should have faced criminal should have faced criminal charges, Michael. You know, we're talking about well, since 1945, it has been illegal to wage wars of aggression. That's true. What the hell was Iraq? What the hell was Iraq? Was it not a war of aggression? Really? There weren't any Iraqis involved in 9/11. There certainly weren't any WMD. Of course, it was a war of aggression. So the idea that Boris Johnson is, you know, uniquely malevolent, and uh, you know that nobody previously in British politics, like Margaret Thatcher or or, or Tony Blair have been involved in criminal activity, I think, you know, even if you were born yesterday, you'd find that hard to swallow. This does matter because Boris Johnson was imposing those laws on everyone else. If he does get a, a fine, he's not going to struggle to pay it. There were many people who did get fines who will struggle to pay it because it was up to, to £10,000. Obviously, if you're you're not someone as, as, as wealthy as Boris Johnson, someone who went to Eton, someone who I'm sure will inherit loads of money, also has a well-paid job because he's prime minister... There are real problems here. It really does matter. But as Aaron says, I absolutely agree. There are there are many prime ministers who should have been interviewed under caution, not least Tony Blair for invading Iraq. Aaron, it has been fabulous being joined by you this evening. It's been my pleasure, Michael. Uh, I just say on that final point about British prime ministers being questioned by the police. Now, the Americans, if they're if their presidents are a bit naughty, they they go all in. You know, look at Nixon. I think we should be the same. And I think it should be retrospective. I think, you know, I think Tony Blair should get that knock at the door and a short, sharp shock from Her Majesty's police. We know their priorities are all wrong, so I, I can't see it happening, but I would, I would endorse that as well. Thank you for watching Tisky Sour this evening. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm. We've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.